Welcome back to On the Record on News Talk. It's Gavin Riley with you until one o'clock this afternoon. Now, as we've already been talking about on the show today, the National Children's Hospital is, of course, making headlines for all of the wrong reasons. But it is a century ago this year that a pioneering doctor, Kathleen Lynn, created a groundbreaking children's hospital in Dublin, St. Ulton's, with an entirely female staff and almost no money doing extraordinary work in helping to combat infant mortality in a city that was both sick and poor and managing to do all of that while also at the same time being deeply involved in the Irish Revolution. That sounds like a story for Donald Fallon, Hidden Histories. Good afternoon, Donald. Good to How be here. You? Topical as ever. As ever. Uh, you, you picked a good one this week. Um, some have suggested that, in fact, the new National Children's Hospital, the Phoenix Hospital, uh, the tainted brand that they're trying not to use this week, uh, that it ought actually to be named after yeah, Kathleen Yeah, and Dermot Ferret made a very convincing argument, actually, in the Irish Times for this, and I, I completely support the idea that this hospital should be named after Dr. Kathleen Lynn. At the minute, actually, it might be a better tribute to her not to name the hospital after her because of the enormous debacle. But if it can be turned around, and I think it can be turned around, there is nowhere more fitting, no one more fitting, to name a children's hospital after than this woman. And, and what she managed to do in one lifetime is incredible. It's a remarkable story. I mean, this woman was at the forefront of the Irish Revolution with the Irish Citizen Army, crucial really to public health reform. And she went to war with TB, you know, which was just rife in Dublin tenements. And really, I think she understood that, you know, a free Ireland, the changing of the flags or the painting of the post boxes mm. meant nothing, you know, if the children were too ill to enjoy it. Um, tell us about her background because she was actually quite unique and actually, uh, surprisingly for many people who might think that she was a, a real social outreach character, she was actually quite middle class herself. She was and that, that's often the case with women in the revolutionary period because you know women work two lives they, they work in the, in the workforce then they come home and they raise a family and the women that had the time and the space and the ability to get involved in politics generally speaking were, were, were more middle class women she was the daughter of an Anglican clergyman from the west of Ireland went to the Royal University then the College of Surgeons and you know she lived in the very affluent Bel- Belgarve Road in Rapmine so despite the fact her upbringing and her life was decidedly middle class to say the least she found herself kind of entangled uh, in radical politics and like a lot of women I think she was very moved by the 1913 lockout I mean for any observer the lockout was a tragic spectacle but if you had a medical background even more so and you just could not escape the reality of the slums and tenement Dublin when that broke out so the influence of people who are also quite middle class or, or upper class in the case of Countess Markovic mm. the Abbey actor Helena Maloney and women like that in the nationalist movement really rubs off on her and she moves close politically to Liberty Hall which is of course the centre of Connolly the Irish Citizen Army mm. and that militia the Citizen Army it was never particularly large I mean it only had a couple of hundred members but they were well trained you know Lynn joined them and lectured them quite extensively uh, on, on first aid and also lectured Come in the Mon which was the dedicated women's organisation and if you were a woman on the left you, know, you were more likely to join the Irish Citizen Army because women could join that on an equal basis to men so rather than join Come in the Mon and be an auxiliary to the male Irish volunteers your place in the Citizen Army was on an equal basis to men and I think that appealed to her very much uh, but it was through all of her engagement in the likes of the Citizen Army and coming among that she also encountered her life partner. Yeah, there was a network of women like Lynn and they were all moving between these various political movements which were kind of overlapping. You know, you had the, the, the national question, you had the suffrage question, the cultural revival. All of this was happening at once. It was a very, very exciting time to be young. And she met her life partner, Madeleine French, Mullen through these movements. And again, you know, Mullen's ba- French Mullen's background was decidedly middle class. Her dad was a Royal Navy surgeon in Malta where she was born. But 
these two women, I mean, they lived together for decades. They spent 30 years together in Lynn's Ratmayan's home. And research in recent years that's been done on this, there were a number of such couples within the nationalist movements. I think it's very telling, actually, that generally it wasn't commented on by others in any kind of negative manner. But we should remember you know, that people around an organisation like the Citizen Army would have regarded themselves, I suppose, as very socially progressive. And there were much bigger issues at play for them <laughs> than the private yeah, lives. There's a lot of, going on. Than fellow, the private lives of fellow members of the organisation. But as I say, you know, in recent years, there's been a lot of work done on this. And I think commemoration today, it's often more shaped by contemporary concerns and contemporary society mm. than the past. You know, we try and find ourselves in the past. And I think we like the idea of, you know, LGBT people playing a role in the foundation of the state. They did. She was part of that. But generally speaking, you know, it, it was well known, but not significant really within the movement. Yeah, it's fascinating to think of people like that who were so clearly uh, centrally involved, but who weren't necessarily flying the flag for LGBT mm. at the time. Uh, both uh, Kathleen and Madeline then uh, themselves both quite involved in the Easter Rising. And they very different Easter Risings. Uh, Lynn was at, at the City Hall, Dublin Castle area. French Mullen was up in, in, in St. Stephen's Green. And the group that Lynn was with at, at City Hall, they fired the first shots of the Rising. It was all very dramatic, actually, the Captain Sean Connolly, actor in the Abbey Theatre, opens fire on a policeman, James O'Brien, who's standing at the gates uh, of Dublin Castle. And then in this real cruel twist of irony, he becomes the first rebel fatality himself shortly afterwards. He's shot dead on the roof of the neighbouring City Hall. Uh, unfortunately for them, the Citizen Army were quickly overrun in City Hall. And when British soldiers arrived into the building, they're just totally stumped by the presence of women there. I mean, they thought that <laughs> these women must be prisoners and not rebels. You know, what are you doing in the midst yeah. of them? But Lynn, French Mullen and other female participants of the Rising found themselves in prisons for their efforts. And on one occasion, and I'm sure this is a defence that loads of people would like to cite now that they know that this is something that could work in a time and place. Uh, one time she was released from prison. She was, yeah. Because was, they needed doctors. She was very lucky. I mean, to have that skill made her quite unique. And she also kept a brilliant diary right through the revolutionary period, which is a great primary source. Because after the Rising, when people are, are are locked up there's this whole range of human emotion of course and some of them are actually quite euphoric which is, to us sounds mad but young fellas in particular they felt like they'd done their bit you know they'd gone into history they'd kept this tradition alive other people kind of slumped into a depression of sorts which is natural enough too mm. but Lynn's immediate concern you know when she's put into prison after the rising is the medical condition there and she says you know we objected to lavatory accommodation and we heard it was good enough for us that lice, fleas and typhoid should contend us they sent her off to England and unlike most of the rebels they deport her but they don't Imprisoner, they actually let her work as a doctor uh, in Bath in England. England yeah. is at war, you know, they need every yeah, doctor they, they, they can get. Much. And when she comes back to Ireland, she flings herself back into radical politics, goes on to the executive of Sinn Fein 1917. But the winds are the, the winds of change are blowing over Ireland by 1917 and 1918. And she's very lucky, you know, the Spanish flu epidemic that hits Ireland in 1918 it actually kills more people than the rising, the war of independence, and the civil war combined. And when the Spanish flu is running amok in Dublin, people are asking publicly, What are we doing locking up? Doctors, you know, we need we need her out. Yeah. The Lord Mayor of Dublin intervenes on her behalf, and she's released during the flu epidemic. Actually, wasn't aware that the Spanish flu had, had taken out that many people. I knew that it had been around, but I didn't realise. Extraordinary. Just I think, I think uh, a conservative estimate would be in excess of twenty thousand people are killed as a result of that flu in, our, in uh, this country. All of which leads us to to why this is so uh, interesting contemporarily. Uh, her hospital, then Saint Ulton, starts up, and it begins with very very little. It does. I mean, it happened nineteen nineteen, like the beginning of of the War of Independence, and you get this her overwhelming 
medical concern, not a political concern, is, is children's health. And St. Ultan's on Charlemont Street, she opens it with an absolute shoestring budget, £70 and two cuts. And, you know, her account of, of, of Ireland at that time is very powerful. She says, the streets were full of undernourished children with pinched cheeks and haggard faces. Even in the country, in the dairy districts where milk and butter were being exported, the babies were fed on skimmed milk and fared worse than babies in the city. There was no place where babies could be taken and treated for malnutrition. There was no place where mothers could go to learn about feeding and baby hygiene. And the infant mortality rate in Dublin was just absolutely shocking. I mean, 153.5 per thousand babies, which per was e- extraordinary, absolutely Basically extraordinary. One in every six children. Yeah, and I mean, there's a combination of reasons for that, but the most significant is poverty. I mean, mm. children are living in cramped tenement accommodation. They're drinking contaminated milk. The parents are unable to afford anything else. And out of this misery comes this really beautiful vision. I mean, St. Alton's had everything. There was an inpatient ward. There were classes on baby care and hygiene for women. They even had an outreach nursing and social work service that went into tenements. And they did this with nothing, as I say, £70, entirely female staffed, and it became the leading children's health facility here. And crucially, I think what it did more than anything is it greatly shamed the powers that be. You know, the the state had to look at this and say... something like this had to mushroom up on a voluntary basis. We're we're failing to do this, and here's this radical, you know, Republican who's doing it instead. And her biographer, uh, Margaret O'Hogarty, she makes the point very well that apart from just improving the health of countless children, its legacy for professional women was the confidence it inspired. It helped female doctors make their mark in the medical world, and the hospital was the physical manifestation of the personal medical philosophy of Dr. Kathleen Lynn. The one thing that's actually striking too, just when you think about it, is that so many of those voluntary hospitals that the state didn't set up, usually they were all set up under some sort of uh, religious ethos or with mm. some sort of uh, of religious grounding to it. So it's interesting that this would have come up just purely on a, on a medical need basis. Um, you mentioned in particular that she went to war on TV. TB just savaged this country for decades. She went to America to raise money for this beloved hospital of hers. But I think after Dr. Noel Brown, the the great minister for health, one of the finest Irish public servants ever, I think she's up there with Noel Brown really as someone that led the charge against TB. And she really was at the forefront of a vaccination drive, which believe it or not, was very controversial Mm. You know, in, in some quarters. And we'll never know how many young Dublin lives were saved because of her commitment uh, to vaccination and eradicating that evil. But the tensions between the church, the Catholic church and St. Ultans were very, very real as well. You know, And in particular, the issue of vaccination, which still from time to time arises as a controversial subject. But I think you know that that is her, that is her legacy. Mm. It's actually extraordinary and, and you're totally right that it would be, uh, obviously the decision seems to be made now, but it would be very, very fitting that any hospital might take her name or even a wing or some mm. outreach facility of it to be a great person to, to have uh, commemorated in that. Uh, it's, it's worth saying that St. Ultans outlived her. I mean, she died in 1955. The hospital continued right through in, into, the, into the 1980s. And this is a debacle. I mean, this this hopefully is not beyond salvation. I, I think we, we need a new children's hospital. And we cannot think for the dead and we can't put words into the mouths of the dead. But it is impossible not to wonder how she'd feel about all of this, the nursing saga as well. And she was someone who ultimately believed that public health had to be prioritised over all other concerns. And it would be only fitting that any children's hospital take her name if and only if it can live up to our standards. Well, I'm reminded that we were only talking on this lot three or four weeks ago about the uh, the centenary programme of the First All and how they talked about how you know independence would be useless if we weren't actually making meaningful impacts in the, the health and welfare of the people. Uh, Donald, fascinating as ever. Thank you very much. Donald Fallon is the author of the Come Here To Me blog and book volume two. Uh, that is it for me today. Off the Ball is up next here on News Talk. My thanks to the production team today of Roisin Davis and Stephen Jordan. Peter Malloy was on sound. Uh, to play you out this week, uh, we have heard this weekend that Lynn 
Lindsay Buckingham, formerly of Fleetwood Mac, is recovering at home after undergoing emergency open heart surgery. The 69-year-old also suffered a vocal cord injury during the course of the procedure. Uh, we wish him a speedy recovery and we hope that he's, uh, he gets better soon. Uh, we're going to leave you with this. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.